if you're following the notes, we're on page five and we're at point three. We're talking about the church that Jesus is building. We know that he is because he said he would. I will build my church. Uh, we are people who have experienced the work that Jesus is doing. He is building his church. He has called us to himself. And as God, through the work of the gospel, is calling people to, our, to, to himself as we put our trust in our Saviour, and we come to the Lord Jesus, as we come to the Lord Jesus, we come to the Father. And as God is gathering people to himself, uh, the Lord Jesus is building his church. Uh, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And this wonderful reality of what Jesus is doing in the world, building his church, is seen wherever there is a group of people who've been gathered by the gospel uh, to God. Uh, and that wonderful work uh, that God is doing by the power of his spirit uh, is what our churches are. They are miracles of grace. Uh, they are works of God. And we've been seeing that, uh, uh, that within the New Testament, this word church, which I would prefer to follow um, the Tyndale translation and stop using the word and use a word like congregation or though even that is in our English has become a Christianized word but an assembly or a gathering that gathering that God is gathering um, is seen in all kinds of places all over the world uh, in all kinds of places all over uh, this country uh, and it is a wonder to behold whenever we see it if we see it with clear eyes uh, if God enables us to see what is actually going on this gathering we want to talk a little bit more about it uh, and we want to talk about uh, a thing that is sometimes called church unity. Because one of the very important features of the church that Jesus Christ is building is its unity. He is building one church. Because the gospel breaks down the divisions of humanity and makes us one. The one church is the church that Jesus is building by the work of the gospel. The church that Jesus is building is the place where the unity which the gospel proclaims is established and it's the place where the unity of the God, that the gospel demands is expressed. In other words, the point at which the idea of Christian unity or church unity is usually applied in a lot of discussions about this subject, that is between denominations. You know, you get, you're getting church unity when two denominations join. No, you're not. Uh, or within denominations, when we all just work at the unity of the, of the big organisation, is not nearly as important, if I may put the matter mildly, as applying this reality where it belongs, namely to the church that Jesus is building. That's what is the unity. The unity of this church is not under threat. You see, when we read that in the Scriptures, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? See, this is a unity that is a gift. It's a given. It's a unity that has been accomplished by the death of Jesus. The barriers are broken down between you and me, brothers and sisters. Whatever barriers there might have been, uh, they have been smashed by the death of Jesus. We have been brought together and there is nothing that needs to be an obstacle between us because the death of Jesus has broken down the biggest of barriers uh, the prayer that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 is a prayer that has been answered and is being answered as we come to him. 
and are being built as living stones into one spiritual house, the 1 Peter 2 image. The dividing walls of hostility uh, have been abolished, uh, the Ephesians 2 language. Now, do you think that the unity of the church that Jesus Christ is building is threatened by anything we do? Do you think it's threatened by actions that might cause havoc in our denominations? Now, whether or not causing havoc in a denomination is a good thing is another question. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. It'll depend. But it's important for us to know and believe that havoc in the denominations is not the same thing as threatening the unity of the church. Um, uh, over, the, over the past many years, uh, there have been many things I have been um, keen on uh, and thought were good ideas. And... Uh, I have found myself opposed and it might have been good that I was opposed, maybe they were stupid ideas, but very often the argument has been for the unity of the church, which always means in this, in this context the unity of the denomination. Don't go there, it will be divisive. And again, it almost always means divisive in the denomination or in my case in the Diocese of Sydney or something like that, uh, which is a small expression of, uh, of the denomination. The point I'm wanting to make here is that people being upset people even being angry about a particular action or a proposal or a policy or a statement, that's not a threat to the unity of the Church of Jesus Christ. Nor, we ought to say, is diversity. The unity of the Church uh, is expounded wonderfully in Ephesians 4. We'll have a quick look at Ephesians 4. Very important to ensure that we hear and understand this passage about, I think it's the best passage, the fullest passage about the unity of the church that Jesus is building. Uh, we must hear it carefully and rightly uh, and reflect on its implications. Look at unity through this passage, uh, Ephesians 4 from verse 4. Uh, one body. There is one body. This one body is the church, the one gathering called into God's presence by the gospel. The fatal mistake is to think that the one body is some worldwide or nationwide organisation. There was no such organisation when Paul wrote those words, neither was there any move or reason to establish one. The organisational links that have developed over the centuries must not in any way be confused with this one body that he's speaking of here. Um, it is that spiritual reality we were talking about uh, earlier this morning, um, uh, assembled in uh, God's presence, um, which all believers participate in. There is one body and, then, and, and there is one spirit. On the one hand, we all have access to the Father by one spirit, Paul said a little earlier in this letter. On the other hand, it is the one spirit, the one breath of God indwelling the members that animates the body. The one body consists of those in whom the one Holy Spirit dwells. That's the nature of our unity. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called. Uh, just as there is one spirit, there is one call, one gospel, one gospel hope, one Lord. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. The church's unity is as certain as the uniqueness of her one Lord, one faith. Uh, in this one body, there is only one object of faith. And only one proper content of faith. Beware of those who glory in theological diversity. There is one faith. Not one faith for Jews and one for Gentiles. How much less one faith for Anglicans and one for Baptists and one for the fellowship of independent evangelical churches. Got to keep getting that, that right. 
it, it, there is not one faith for one party and one faith for another faith from the other party, one faith for independence and one for denomination. No, there's one body and there is one faith, one baptism. Paul was clearly not thinking of our distinction between water and spirit baptism, nor is it conceivable that he identified those two as one and the same. It seems to me certain that he here means the baptism in the spirit by which all believers, Jews, Greeks, slave, free, were incorporated into one body. And finally, one and father of all who is over all, through all and in all. When you start thinking like that, when you see the uniqueness of our God, the uniqueness of the way of salvation, the uniqueness of the church that Jesus is building, that's its unity. That's the unity that really matters. Don't fear for this unity. This is the unity we experience. Have you had the experience? Travelling to a strange place where you don't know anyone and meeting a brother or sister in Christ and the bond that there is between you. That's the unity of the Spirit. That's a gift. It exists because of the work of Christ. Uh, it is a wonder. And uh, we, 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 we need to see it, we need to value it, we need to treasure it, and not fear for the unity of the church of Jesus Christ. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, only when we see and believe in the unity that is not under threat can we understand properly the fact that the unity is always under threat. This very passage uh, in Ephesians chapter 4 is preceded by a call to be eager, and there's a sense of urgency and, and, and energy in that word, be eager to maintain or to guard the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Uh, read more widely and we discover that Paul was dismayed at the news that there were divisions among the believers in Corinth. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. What was going on in Corinth? Kind of inversion of Ephesians 4, he asks, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? How can you be divided? To the Romans he wrote, I urge you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, Romans 16 verse 17. Where and in what ways is the unity of the church which is not under threat, under threat? The potential for divisions that concern the writers of the New Testament and the conduct that is called for because of the unity that has been given to us is located in the congregations of believers. Is it not at least an interesting fact, it might be an interesting but unimportant fact, but at least I think it's an interesting fact, that the concern about division that we find in the New Testament is all, as far as I can see, focused on divisions within congregations. Not divisions between congregations. The behaviour that will maintain or guard the unity of the Spirit, according to Ephesians 4, is the conduct between believers who meet with one another. 
It's humility to illness in dealing with one another. It's patience in response to one another. It's bearing with one another in love, all in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. Those who cause divisions, according to Romans 16, are those whose smooth talk and flattery deceives the minds of naive people with teaching contrary to what you have learned. The unity is maintained or guarded by the way in which believers behave towards each other in the congregation and by the rejection of false teaching in the congregation, which is by its very nature divisive. If we are concerned about the unity that matters, our focus will be on the health of the congregation, the church as it is in each place. That's where the unity of the spirit is displayed and that's where it's to be kept. Uh, I'm going to consider the role of denomination shortly and I actually think it's quite important to think about that. But for the moment, we can conclude that high on the agenda for a denomination will be the good of the congregations, not the good of the denomination. We'll work out some of the implications of that in due course. Let me try and sum up so far. The Lord Jesus is building one church. The reality of this church is manifested wherever people are gathered by the gospel. The unity of the church is secure and must be maintained in the gatherings of believers. What then is a denomination? I hope you'll see the relevance of this uh, to us all here uh, in a few minutes. It's commonly suggested that the denomination, uh, or a denomination as we know that thing today, is a relatively modern phenomenon. Um, you sometimes read in the books of church history and so on a reference to the period of the undivided church, um, pre-denominations in other words. Uh, I think that that is a very superficial reading of history uh, and a failure to understand what uh, is going on theologically. Certainly the term denomination uh, may be relatively modern. I'll say something about that in a minute, where it came from. And denominations have developed in particular ways in relatively modern times. But I want to suggest that what a denomination fundamentally is has existed since New Testament times and has only ceased to exist in times and places where persecution or coercion of some kind has been used as an instrument to prevent it. Denominations are, I'm going to be suggesting, an inevitable consequence of the progress of the gospel and are not in themselves a cause for concern. On the contrary, uh, evangelicals, I'm going to argue, should welcome and defend the phenomenon of denominations, but also be much clearer than we often are about what a denomination is and what it isn't. And I confess, therefore, to being not only a congregationalist, as we saw earlier on today, but also a denominationalist. Uh, since these things are usually regarded as mutually exclusive, uh, I've got a little bit of explaining to do, which I will try to do. Here's a working definition of a, don of a denomination. Um, a denomination is an association of some churches which does not include all churches. 
That's my working definition of a denomination. A denomination is an association of some churches that does not include all churches. All right? Now, on that definition, and let's not be semantic, I'm absolutely happy if you never use the word. Okay? Completely happy if you never use the word. But on that definition, uh, whether you like it or not, FIEC is a denomination. Okay? Uh, but I'm perfectly happy to, for you to say, but the word denomination has all sorts of associations we don't want to take on. Good on you. Uh, no problem with that whatsoever. We'd rather call ourselves a fellowship of, and, and a fellowship, uh, good, I think that's a good idea. There's no, there's no value whatsoever in the, in the word uh, denomination as such, but the, the phenomenon, the reality, uh, I, I, I think it's worth our while reflecting on theologically what is the fellowship of independent evangelical churches. And I'm suggesting to you that it's the, it's the same phenomenon as the thing we call denominations. Now, the features of a denomination that I'm including in this definition are, A, it's an association of churches. Uh, it's wrong to think of it as a church. B, it's an association of churches, uh, as distinct from an association of individual Christians, you know, like Scripture Union or perhaps the Bible Society or the Church Missionary Society, or there's all sorts of things you can belong to and be members of uh, as individual Christians. But no, the, the, the thing we're trying to think about is an association of churches. And C, uh, it's an association which in principle does not include and doesn't even try to include all churches. Now, when I put it simply like that, three obvious questions are raised. Why do we need an association like that? Uh, why does it come into existence? Two, uh, what kinds of, a, uh, of association do we mean? What, what do we mean? Association is a nice neutral word that I've chosen. It doesn't really tell you what, in what way these churches are associated. So what do I mean by that? Uh, and thirdly, what good purposes could such an association have? Why would you associate with other churches like that? For what purpose? Uh, these questions are not answered in the definition because a great variety of answers are possible to each of those questions, and I hope that will become clear as we proceed. Uh, I'm not interested in tracing the use of the term denomination um, except to say this about it, uh, in roughly the sense that I'm using it, it was popularised in the 18th century by the leaders of the Evangelical Revival and the Great Awakening. Um, suffice to say that in that context, as here, the, the concept was a humble one. Uh, it implied only that the group referred to shared the name given to the association on view. Uh, denomination, in this sense... Uh, is a deliberate rejection of sectarianism. Sectarianism is the view that a particular group is the only legitimate expression of church. Now, denominations are deliberately rejecting that and saying, uh, we're a group and we're given ourselves a denominator. We're given ourselves a name. What we have in common uh, is the name. We're not suggesting for a moment that we're the only group of true churches or anything like that, uh, but uh, we, we've given ourselves a name and we've associated for one reason or another. Denominationalism as a concept, as distinct from the term, uh, is often traced back to the 17th or even the 16th centuries. However, I suggest that we ought to see that it's been there from the beginning. It's in the New Testament. Have you spotted the denominations in the New Testament? The most obvious example from the evidence we have is the so-called Pauline churches. Now, these are churches that had a common personal link with their founding apostle, apostle Paul. 
the evangelist who brought them the gospel. Paul's letters and the circulation of those letters, his visits and those of his associates, uh, the famous collection, are all expressions of this association. This is churches that are related to one another in, in various, pretty informal ways, but nevertheless they are interested in each other, they care about each other and they've got this link. We note that there was no organisational link between these churches. Some were more closely associated than others simply because of their location. Paul's authority with respect to these churches was real, but it wasn't institutionalised, and it was exercised wherever possible by persuasion and exhortation. Now, there is, of course, nothing inherently wrong with the association of churches who shared this relationship with Paul. Neither is there any basic reason that other churches should or should not be drawn into that association. It does seem that churches like Laodicea and Colossae, which were not established by Paul himself, but by those who had themselves been brought the gospel by Paul, were drawn into this association. Nothing wrong with that. There is certainly something to be said about the attitude of those who belonged to this association of churches towards those who do not. The collection for the saints in Jerusalem, definitely not one of the Pauline churches, was an important expression of that, for for, for very profound reasons, of course, but nonetheless uh, worth observing. The potential for disagreements to arise between churches associated on one basis, let's say the Pauline churches, and others associated on another basis, perhaps there was a group of churches that had a relationship with Peter of a similar kind, there'd be real potential for disagreements, wouldn't there, between those two groups of churches, just as, of course, as there are uh, potential for disagreements within a congregation uh, or between churches that share an association. But it's reasonable to suppose, indeed I think it's difficult to imagine otherwise, that there were churches who did not see eye to eye with the Pauline churches on some matters, Indeed, some matters of significant importance. Now, history has produced an enormous variety and complexity of associations between churches. Some of these associations have been expressed in complex organisational structures over the centuries and have their own long histories. Various understandings of the significance of these structures have emerged history will continue to produce new associations that will develop in various ways, like FIEC. Over time, the organisational structures of a denomination have tended to take on a life of their own. For a wide variety of historical reasons, the churches, the congregations I mean, associated by the structures have become increasingly diverse in faith and practice. Uh, Certainly the older denominational structures nowadays include many groups. We mentioned this earlier this morning, groups of people where the word of God is no longer heard and where there is uh, no reason to believe that those who meet uh, together have actually been born again. They are no longer churches of God. And further, the organisational structure of a denomination can fall into the hands of people who don't believe the gospel. All that has, has happened uh, and has happened uh, to an alarming degree uh, in the historic denominations. And this is something of the dilemma facing evangelicals in the historic denominations today. It's part of the reason that FIEC exists, I take it. 
Uh, if the denominational structures were all we'd like them to be, I wonder whether FIC would have come into being. It'd be perfectly okay if it did. Not that, not there'd be anything wrong with it coming into being if it did, but, but part, of, part of our tension was there, there were no structures that did the work that we were hoping would happen. Um, there are those who take the view that evangelicals cannot remain in an organisational structure uh, when the structure has lost the gospel and when those in powerful positions in the structure promote a false gospel. There are those who want to stay in the structure in order to change it back to what it was meant to be. Uh, we use the word reform. Uh, there are those who take the view that the organisation was set up by gospel churches for the benefit of gospel churches and there's no, no way that we're going to leave. And there are a whole lot of other responses to this situation um, and I want us to reflect on that situation because I think it will illuminate uh, our own uh, in various ways. I'm going to do it in the following way. First... We're going to think about the value and the importance of denominationalism. And what I'm really talking about is the value and importance of the fellowship of independent evangelical churches and things like that. As distinct from, on the one hand, a desire for a pure association of all true churches. That's not denominationalism, you see. If you want a pure association of all true churches. And on the other hand, congregational independence. We're not going to have anything to do with any other churches. Denominationalism is neither of those things. Uh, it's something in the middle, and I'm wanting to argue the, the good of it. And I want to argue that denominations, in this sense, can be an expression of the unity of the spirit, and that's what they should be. And then I'd like to reflect on some of the difficulties that denominations can cause. These arise from misunderstandings of the nature of a denomination and inappropriate policies and actions by the denominations. I want to reflect on how a denomination can oppose the unity of the spirit, uh, as they often do. And it seems to me that uh, a fellowship like the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches, at this point in its history, does well to have a good look at what's gone wrong in denominations. Not with a hope that nothing will ever go wrong in our fellowship, but just learning what lessons can be learnt. And thirdly, I'd try to draw out some simple implications for evangelicals and evangelical churches and our life uh, with respect to our denominations, including FIEC. So uh, heading number five, a denomination can express the unity of the spirit. I've argued um, through today for a congregational understanding of the church, which is a tautology. The work that the Lord is doing by his spirit through the gospel is building his church, calling people to himself. In this world, this reality is seen as the Lord calls people to himself in various localities. Those drawn by God to himself are drawn by his spirit to each other. It is simply inconceivable. I mean, it happens, unfortunately, so I suppose it isn't inconceivable, but it's very difficult to imagine how it could be right uh, for a person to come to Christ, uh, be born again, and not care at all about a person nearby who has been born again by the same spirit, uh, and not be drawn to them. Uh, I've argued that the word church and the glorious significance of the church of God, the gathering of God according to the New Testament, the unity of the spirit applies to this reality of believers brought into one another's company, by virtue of the work of, uh, the, the, work of the Spirit. Um, 
both in its spiritual, or as we said earlier today, its heavenly aspect, and in its earthly aspect, the local gathering of believers. Uh, That's where we see and experience the unity of the Spirit. However, none of this implies that in this world, congregations should regard themselves as independent in the sense of not having relationships with other congregations. Independence in this sense is not a Christian concept. Independence is the spirit of our age, where radical individualism is the form that rejection of God is most commonly commonly expressed. The gospel calls us into dependence, first on the Lord and then on one another. The spirit of dependence then goes beyond the local congregation. See, if you read the uh, opening verses of uh, 1 Corinthians, the church of God in Corinth shared the experience of being sanctified in Christ, of being called, of being holy, quote, with all who call on the name of our Lord Jesus in every place, their Lord and ours. Uh, Someone has put it rather helpfully, I quote, the same spirit which draws us into each other's company to share Christ together will also give us a spirit of love and unity with other congregations as we come to know of their existence. The question is, how should the unity we share with other believers, because they too are members of the church that Jesus is building, how should that unity be expressed when because of the limitations of time and space it's impractical to meet with those believers? The answer will vary according to circumstances. There may be opportunities to communicate, to cooperate, to help, to be helped. Such opportunities are likely to especially arise between churches that share some common experience, some common history perhaps, some common characteristics. A special relationship with the Apostle Paul provided such an opportunity. A shared history and the way of doing things may provide such an opportunity. But it's highly likely that there will be... Sorry, it's highly unlikely that there will be significant opportunities for all believers all over the world to express their fellowship in any meaningful way in this world, in this age, simply because of the limitations of the physical world. So the denomination, an association between churches like FIEC arises out of the spirit of fellowship between believers beyond their own congregation. And its purpose is to express and facilitate the fellowship of the spirit beyond the local congregation, to show that we love our brothers and sisters beyond our own group. Um, And I'm saying that the emergence of FIEC is more than a pragmatic thing. It's an expression of the unity of the spirit. If it didn't happen, you'd want it to happen. That is, I don't believe we'd want to have congregations all over Australia who didn't care about any other congregations. It's simply impractical to say, or it's it's not sufficient to, to simply say, well, we care about all the, like God bless everybody. We do care about all the churches in Australia, but we're not going to have anything to do with them. It's impractical to say, well, we'll try and have an association of some sort of link with every true church in Australia. That won't work but we must care about people as we have opportunity. And FIEC is not the only churches that you're going to care about, 
but it is a group of churches that you'll care about. And it's, it's sort of relatively easy because there is a common history, there is a common way of doing things, there are, there, there are people that we know and the, 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 there, are, there are networks that make it easy for us to relate to one another, to care about one another, uh, to cooperate with one another in various ways. So it seems to me that if a, if a congregation or a church, a house church or something like that uh, arises and wants to assert its independence in the sense that it has no desire to relate to other believers or other churches, there is a defective under, understanding of the church that Jesus is building there and an inadequate experience of the Holy Spirit, what Paul calls the fellowship of the Spirit. If the churches of FIEC had developed and they haven't, I'm glad to say, but had developed a mindset that wanted nothing to do with any other churches, then those churches would, ha- would have been, I, would, I judge, defective. Not because they didn't belong to a denomination, but because they would have been more like a club than the church that Jesus Christ is building. They'd be more of a group that exists for itself. And, and, and turned in on itself rather than being the gathering that God is gathering to himself uh, and, and a recognition of the great thing that God is doing throughout this land, throughout the world. In the early centuries of the gospel, this wider fellowship was expressed in relatively unstructured ways, some of which I've sort of touched on. In time, structures were developed to express the strengthening of the fellowship between churches. The first such formal structure that we know of was a meeting between senior church members to resolve a problem that was affecting the life of the churches and it's described in Acts chapter 15. Uh, The history books call this the Council of Jerusalem but that is to project back an official and formal status that only developed later. It was in fact an expression of Christian fellowship between the churches appropriate to a particular need that had arisen and the churches and the leadership in the churches cared about this so that they got together and talked through the problem. Now structures have developed in complexity over the centuries. Uh, What happened was that a permanent central bureaucracy developed uh, as we all know well. Uh, The structures did not necessarily arise or develop in ways that were consistent with the fellowship of the Spirit that drew the churches together and into relationship with one another in the first place. These structures, therefore, often became problematic because the purpose of the association had been forgotten. And it must be remembered that the reason that we care for one another, the reason that we're associated with one another as churches is to express and deepen the fellowship between the churches. Um, We'll return to some of the problems in a little while. But uh, one of the principles um, for the fellowship of independent evangelical churches, I want to uh, suggest to you, should be to watch closely the structures that develop over the years. Uh, Beware of the dangers uh, that we're going to touch on uh, a little later on. So... um, Uh, fellowship between the congregations. Now, freedom of conscience. One of the features of what we are calling a denomination is that it does not embrace all churches and nor does it try to. And I'm suggesting that there have always been what is sometimes called parallel denominations. Uh, If you like, there were the Pauline churches and the Peter churches 
Uh, and the, the, if we knew more about uh, the New Testament situation, I'm sure that there, were other, there would be other ways of describing uh, the ways in which congregations related to one another. The reasons for parallel denominations, even in one geographical area, may be various. But one of them is the inevitable development of conscientious disagreements between believers. Uh, we long for unity. We long for agreement. We pray for it and we work for it. But so long as we are finite beings and fallible beings, we, there will be disagreements between us. Because we recognise the imperfection of our knowledge and our wisdom, we don't anticipate complete agreement on all things between all believers in this world. Parallel denominations provide for liberty of conscience. The alternative to parallel denominations is one denomination, which could only be maintained by persecution. Uh, that was attempted by the medieval Roman church and it was attempted in England by the Church of England with the 1662 Act of Uniformity. Those, uh, those who are proud Anglicans, and there are none here, I'm sure, uh, must remember that uh, the, the, the Anglican denomination was really born in an act of persecution against people like us. Uh, that's what the 1662 Act of Uniformity was about and uh, people were driven out uh, of the churches uh, for conscientious reasons, uh, it was uh, a shameful event, the 1662 Act of Uniformity. To allow freedom of conscience on certain matters requires parallel associations. These are not necessarily the most important matters, but they are matters in which disagreements make practical cooperation of some kind uh, unworkable. Um, disagreements about baptism... Uh, and so we have a Baptist denomination and other denominations that are so-called a particular understanding of baptism and other denominations that are not persuaded of that view of baptism. Now, the reason that you have to have the parallel associations is because the two practices can't live side by side. You can't believe that infant baptism is wrong and have it. You can't believe that infant baptism is necessary and not have it. So these differences which you might say, well, I hope that many, many people would agree, certainly many evangelicals would agree, this is not a great big issue, but, but, but you've got to decide that it's either okay or it's not okay. And so we, we find it practically impossible to have church uh, in a way that embraces both understandings and so we have parallel denominations. Do we care about each other? Of course we do. Do you care about the Baptist church down the road, particularly if it's a gospel church? Well, the believers, of course you do. You just, you, just, you just aren't associated with them in the way that you're associated with another group of people and uh, that is okay. I have no idea what you guys have done about baptism, what you think about baptism. Uh, please, I'm not trying to cause a fight. Um, and, and it may be you, the, the, that you're agreeing not to even talk about it. That's okay too. But historically, uh, it's that kind of issue and allowing for freedom of conscience, which is a much better way than coercing everybody to, the, to, to one, one view or the other by persecution. That's the Anglican way. Uh, <laughs> it is. It is. Historically, it is. And it will be again. Um, the Anglican denomination in Australia can't yet work out whether they can cope with being one denomination and having different views about the ordination of women. Now, in actual fact, they can't be one denomination because that associates... Oh, I won't go into it. Forget about it. <laughs> what I'm trying to indicate is the benefit of denominationalism for freedom of conscience that it allows. It's a great, it's a great idea. So if there's a church that you, you find that the majority of people here just disagree with on some practical issue, 
and they say, well, we can't actually keep, keep working with you guys anymore because it just get, keeps getting in the way. It doesn't have to be a breach of fellowship, but they may well move outside the fellowship of independent evangelical churches. And when that kind of thing arises, we want to do it with the best possible continuing relationships and pray for that group and remain in, 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 in good relationships with them and pray that the Lord will continue to bless them, even if their ways are a bit different to our ways. We must be very clear that some things are gospel issues and we'll fight to the death on. But we mustn't make everything a gospel issue and fight to the death on and cause uh, breaches and so on. So for freedom of conscience, denominations are good things. The third obvious benefit of churches associating with one another in what I'm calling denominations is the potential for cooperation in projects that require more resources than those that are at the disposal of most local congregations. Um, examples would include the recruiting and training of ministers, the support of gospel work in difficult areas. Uh, in Sydney, we have no individual congregation, I don't believe, that can actually sponsor gospel outreach to the Muslims of Sydney. The denomination is having a go at it. It's really, really hard, but at least we can pool our resources and we can pool wisdom, we can pray for this work and we can, we, we, we can, seek, to, we can seek to finance it by, by lots of churches sort of pooling money to do that sort of thing. Um, uh, there's something that can be done when churches cooperate together, but it would be very difficult for any one existing congregation to do. Uh, you might publish stuff together, you might... Uh, you, you, you can think of, uh, you know, you, you might provide retirement funds for your ministers or, you know, something really important like that. Um, you might run a conference for the encouragement of church leaders. That'd be a good idea, wouldn't it? See? Things that can be done when you work together uh, that you couldn't do uh, as independents. That's another good reason for a denomination. Now, in principle, uh, how a lot of these tasks, these good things that could be done, could be explored through different associations, a whole lot of them could actually be accomplished through the cooperative, cooperative action of individual Christians rather than an association of churches. Indeed, uh, historically, I don't know why this is, there could be a reason for it, but the support of overseas missions has generally worked very well through voluntary societies of Christian people, quite separate from the main denominational structures. Now, in principle, such voluntary societies are very like denominations, they arise out of the fellowship of the Spirit. Uh, there are Christian people scattered around in different churches who have a heart to see the gospel go out into all the world. And they have a meeting one day because they've heard of one another and they form the Church Missionary Society and they start to work out how we can do this and how we can support this. And so you've now got a whole lot of churches, that, the churches that get behind this work. They're CMS churches. They're churches that support the work of the Church Missionary Society. That's another denomination, really, because they're churches in association now, what we've got now is not just parallel denominations, but overlapping denominations. No one calls what I'm describing denominations. Uh, I'm suggesting that the essential theological spiritual, re spiritual reality of what a denomination is, is much bigger than we usually use the word for. So, so we've got some associations between churches that nobody really recognises. So uh, you could have a local denomination, you could have all the gospel churches uh, in a suburb that actually care about each other and have some sort of links, uh, pray for each other perhaps. Perhaps there's, a, there's a, perhaps there's an annual time when you all get together. There you've got the thing that I'm calling a denomination, churches associated with one another. 
The spiritual reality is the unity of the spirit between us, the unity that we have in the gospel. Um, and you can have uh, the, the CMS churches or the uh, Scripture Union churches, or you can have uh, churches associated in ways that we're more used to calling denominations. So there are parallel denominations and there are overlapping denominations, and that's all to the good. Uh, I, I'm all for as many such associations as is practical, or it should be for the good. A denomination can oppose the unity of the spirit. We'll make this the last big section where I'd get into much more trouble in most circles saying these things, but I don't expect to get to, into any trouble here. That's because you're a young denomination. Yes. A denomination is not a church, and it is dangerous to treat it as though it is. Then the denomination inevitably becomes opposed to the unity of the spirit. Let me try and explain why. A church, that is a congregation, is ruled over by God's spirit through his word. A denomination, because it rarely, if ever, meets for this purpose, is not under the influence of God's spirit in the same way as a church is or should be. It is particularly easy, therefore, for a denomination to lose sight of its proper spiritual role. Instead of being an expression of the unity of the spirit, an outworking of the fellowship of those who in different places call on the name of the Lord Jesus, the denomination, once it's developed institutional structures of some kind, and people come to think of those structures as really important, and they come to think of them then as the church, the denomination can then impede the fellowship of the Spirit. In, indeed, history suggests that over time, this temptation becomes close to irresistible. The responsibility is on those who belong to such an association to ensure that the association works for the good, but is not allowed to quench the Spirit. We ought to recognise that this is a solemn responsibility. The denomination is a voluntary association, no matter what power its organisation may acquire over the years and over the centuries. The denomination must be understood to be subordinate to the churches that belong to it, not the other way round. And where it has become the other way round, it ought to be turned back. I want to consider the potential for the denomination to oppose the unity of the spirit under three headings, which I'm suggesting history has shown uh, is very commonly what goes wrong, which I don't think is anywhere near going wrong in FIEC, but I don't think it hurts, at all, hurts us at all to notice that this is the problems that have developed in other places and other groups. If the understanding I've been trying to share with you, brothers and sisters, is, is approximately correct... The spiritual justification for the denomination is the unity that exists between believers beyond the local congregation. The congregation remains the primary expression of the unity of the spirit, where the relationships created by Christ's demolition of the barriers is most fully manifested in this world. That's where you learn to love your brothers and sisters as brothers and sisters in Christ. The first temptation for the denomination, and I'd suggest the first thing that happens once the purpose of the denomination has been forgotten, is that the association's central organisation becomes more important than the churches it exists to serve. The denomination becomes a franchise operation where there are local outlets that have permission 
to market the brand name. With centralism comes control and interference. Whereas in spiritual reality, the local gathering of believers is assembled by Christ and ruled over by his spirit through his word, as members serve one another, the denomination is tempted to rule the congregation from a distance, according to its own interests, with rules. And the greater the control exercised by the central body, the more passive the members of the local congregation become until they abandon their responsibility for the church's life and don't care about faithfulness to Christ and to one another. My guess is that um, most of the churches represented here, which are relatively young churches, are churches where the members, those who've joined, recognise that if we don't make this work, it's not going to work. What happens historically when the denominations become strong, uh, you've got the Anglican church on the corner that people come to, people attend, people come and watch, uh, and it'll go on whether I'm there or not. I don't own it in that sense. Uh, And that's the great danger because the denomination is now running the church uh, and the denomination is now keeping the church going. Uh, And uh, it's not my responsibility at all. I just go along and attend. I believe that the control of the denomination over the life and ministry of the local congregation must be resisted. In the case of a denomination where the values and goals of the association as a whole have been lost and lost touch with the gospel, it's absolutely imperative that we break the power of the denomination over the local church. Otherwise, very soon, there will be no place for evangelical ministry in that denomination. Um, Once again, I apologise if this seems a little remote from your concerns. But you know, uh, in the great debate in the um, Anglican Communion over the ordination of uh, practising gay people, uh, and a huge furor over that. You know, the, one of the solutions that was being advocated and being advocated by some really quite good people, I think, was that the central, that the Archbishop of Canterbury be given the power to kick people out of the Anglican Communion if they, if, if they, if they didn't toe the line. Just supposing you had an Archbishop of Canterbury who was given that power and he kicked out all the people who ordained practising gay people on biblical grounds, what do you think the next thing he'd do would be? What do you think the next Archbishop of Canterbury would do? I'll almost guarantee that you'd be kicked out for holding to the gospel. You'd be kicked out for some reason that we wouldn't like nearly as much if you'd given that power to the centre. That's, that's just how the denomination uh, seems to work. And so although you can see good achieved by a godly leader of a big organisation, so you give him power... But that's not the way in which Christ's church works. Christ's church works by the rule of Christ over the people of God uh, in a local place as they meet together, as they, as they live under the word of God, not by the rule of coercion by a powerful leader, even a good powerful leader. And it, 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 historically it has led again and again, and I think inevitably, uh, to that power being abused. Now, I have no intimate knowledge of FIEC, uh, that's my loss, uh, but let me suggest two principles that the historic denominations have got wrong and that a young association like FIEC should watch closely. They are one, who serves a local church as its ministers should not be controlled centrally 
but be the responsibility of the local church. Who serves the local church as ministers, as its ministers, should not be controlled centrally, but should be the responsibility of the local church. And, two, you're possibly nowhere near this danger yet, but I'm flagging it as something to give very careful consideration to if it ever, if it ever comes up. Two, church property should be under the control of the local congregation, not under the central organisation. Now, policies in areas like this call for careful wisdom and throwing out two things like that is all very easy to do. Um, I'm not suggesting that it's necessarily simple in every case. But one of the rules of thumb that I apply personally to thinking about the denomination that I am involved in, uh, and I believe that should apply to an association like FIEC, is simply this. If a proposal for FIEC increases the power of the organisation of the association... I'll oppose it. That'll be my rule of thumb. Now, you know, I'm happy to look at individual cases and argue through particular things, but I'll oppose it. In the Anglican setup, if a proposal increases the power of the Archbishop, much as I respect the present one enormously, or of the central organisation, I'll oppose it. If a proposal frees the life of the local congregation, I'll support it. Now, that's not a, that's not a guarantee for things being good, is it? Things can go bad locally and a really good person could pull them into line. But I'm suggesting that that's a bad way to set things up. That's not, the Bible doesn't give us that kind of structure, that kind of power. If things go bad, they go bad. And the way to, the way to solve that is uh, prayerful proclamation of the gospel, prayerful teaching of the word of God uh, and God, godly action within that group. Uh, uh, things go bad. But, let's not set, but we ought not to set up uh, denominational structures uh, to guarantee what they won't guarantee. The second thing is denominational loyalty. I wonder if this applies to FIEC in any way or might in, 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 in the next little while. A denomination, once it's developed, appears typically to demand the loyalty of the individual churches and their members to the association. The denomination very easily loses sight of its proper role of encouraging faithfulness to Christ and, of all, and all who belong to him. Instead of being a means to this end, the denomination becomes an end in itself. And here again, I can illustrate this much more easily from the historic denominations, and I ask you to think through uh, any relevant application to your own situation. But how many times do you hear the criticism that so-and-so is not, re not really Anglican? Now, is there a version of that yet in FIEC? They're not really, I don't know what word you'd use, but somebody is not quite part of our club. Not really Presbyterian, they say, or whatever it is. Loyalty to an association like that, loyalty actually isn't a Christian virtue. Indeed, loyalty can be sinful. We have the expression blind loyalty. The Christian virtue is faithfulness. And faithfulness is exercised towards persons, not institutions. Faithfulness to Christ is our first duty, uh, as he has been faithful to us. And faithfulness to our brothers and sisters, into whose company God has drawn us, is second. And faithfulness to brothers and sisters beyond our circles is a third. But loyalty to a denomination or an association or an organisation is not helpful. It's often expected in exclusive terms. 
Relations between members of the same denomination are seen to take precedence over relations with other believers. Uh, it's regarded, uh, if you had this experience with people moving into your area, when a person moves into a different town, it's disloyal if they join a church of a different denomination or if they have been a part of a historic denomination and they come and join uh, an FIEC church. Um, participating in the activities or projects with other denominational churches is often frowned on. Uh, or at least it should take second place to participation with one's own denomination. The scandal of denominationalism, which isn't inherent in the concept, and neither is it necessary in practice, but the scandal is the creation of barriers to fellowship with those who do not belong to our denomination, based on the traditions of men. When the denomination has gained some control over the life of its member churches, these barriers to fellowship can be imposed. And so uh, those of you who've had experience in the historic denominations, I think, uh, can uh, see the kind of thing that I'm talking about. I wonder whether there are issues for us to watch here as FIEC develops. The third means by which a denomination can oppose the unity of the spirit uh, and with this one we'll close for the time being, uh, is denominational distinctives. It's only natural that an association of churches that has a history will develop some distinctive expressions of their relationship. You've got some of them, you're probably unaware of them. Uh, anybody from outside of your group that uh, look on, they'll, they'll recognise them in immediately. Uh, they'll recognise FIEC churches do things this way. Um, there would appear to be no great problem with that in principle, until these distinctives become regarded as essentials. Once the distinctives of your association become part of your religion, your denomination has become a sect. We see it easily in the historic denominations. Once the distinctives, and you know, they're such silly things, aren't they, of dress or liturgy or polity or some other practice become hindrances to relating to other believers who don't share those distinctives, then the distinctives must be challenged. And the problem appears to be that when a denomination is in decline, as so many of them are, it becomes really concerned with its own identity. Uh, it's amazing how much has been written in recent years about the Anglican identity crisis. Uh, if only that identity crisis had arisen because members of this association didn't care about being different from their brothers and sisters outside the denomination. Uh, if only it was because Anglicans had learnt to sit loose to their subculture and cared only about those things they share with all those in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Then we could say, who cares about Anglican identity? Doesn't matter. But alas, I fear that the reasons for the so-called crisis are rather different. However, should not evangelicals at least be genuinely unconcerned about their denominational identity? I'm speaking to the converted here, aren't I? But will I be speaking to the converted in 10 years' time? For the reasons that I've mentioned, it seems to me that uh, the, 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 the distinctives of a particular <coughs> denomination are not important things. It doesn't matter at all that a denomination maintain its distinctiveness. It's not to be wondered at that uh, evangelicals have tended to take the lead in dispensing with denominational distinctives. 
um, that have no basis in God's word and have lost any usefulness in expressing the spiritual unity of the fellowship between churches. And so it has been evangelicals who've been keen to get rid of distinctive titles and distinctive clothing and all that sort of stuff. Certainly, changes in these areas may, depending on circumstances, require patience and wisdom. There may be circumstances where change is not possible or desirable. But we ought, to, ought not to be among those who resist change because of denominational identity. Uniformity of distinctive practices between churches of a denomination is of no spiritual value. Say that again as uh, FIEC develops. Uniformity of distinctive practices between churches of an association is of no spiritual value. It establishes a false unity. See, our unity isn't because all our churches are established the same way. Uh, we could, uh, I suppose, as a fellowship say, if you're going to be a fellowship in this, uh, in, in this church, you've got to have the same constitution as all of the churches have. That might be practically helpful. It might be a useful thing to do. But it's a pragmatic, useful thing rather than a matter of spiritual value. That's no more valuable than saying every church in its own situation has to work out its own constitution. Uh, the unity we find when we grab on to some distinctive like that and, 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 and say that's what distinguishes us uh, very easily substitutes for the unity of the spirit. And it has tended to do so historically. Again, I leave you to consider whether there are matters uh, for FIEC to consider here. I want to say a little bit more, um, and on Wednesday we'll pick this up because I think we've all had quite enough today, uh, on the unity of the spirit being smaller and larger than the denomination, and then I want to talk to you a little bit about the nature of the ministry. But how about we just see if there are any questions, comments that uh, folk would like to raise? What have we seen? Yes. John, uh, good to see you, man. Nope. Nope. And I, from what I'm saying, I, yeah, I speak innocently here. I wasn't having a go at anything. Um, I was not even aware there was such a thing. Okay, that's how ignorant I am. And that's right. That's all right. No, and uh, uh, what, I, what, what I would say is that uh, the principles of organisation, you justify them on pragmatic grounds. Um, so long as you're not, not actually breaking spiritual principles, gospel principles or anything like that, but do we organise this way or that way? Uh, is, in my judgment, uh, uh, very often neither here nor there. Yes, yes, brother. Now, I'll need some help with getting uh, clear on the question. You, you, you asked me, what is the relationship between the association between churches and, and the individual members of those churches? Uh, that is to say, the individual member of this church and the individual member of this church? Uh, um, well, the, the association between the churches is of a different nature, I'm suggesting to the... I, I think this is what you're getting at. The relationship between the Christians in the association, uh, it, sorry, in the congregation, 
in the congregation. Uh, they are to love one another. They are to live together under the word of God. They are to share the word of God with one another. They are to teach and exhort one another. There's all sorts of things that happen because they actually know one another and they meet with one another. They're, they're to be church, all the things that church is to be. Now, just because of physical limitations, they don't have the opportunity or very rarely have the opportunity to do that with members of a church in Africa that they might be linked to. Because we are a church of Jesus Christ and there is a church of Jesus Christ that I've heard about in Africa, I might well link up with that church and take an interest in that church, pray for them. They might pray for us. Uh, we might give to them. They might give to us. There might be, there might be, might be visits between us. But the members of this church won't know the members of that church in the same way as they know the people that they meet regularly. So it's a different kind of relationship, a more distant relationship. They'll love them, but they won't be uh, teaching one another, exhorting one another, doing all the church one another things that are possible. Uh, of course, um, uh, in, uh, in the modern world, with all sorts of possibilities, there might be more church-like relationships, given social media and all that kind of thing, between members of this church and members of that church. Um, but I think it's reasonable to say that even in this day of social media, uh, meeting face-to-face -face, uh, is a different order of, of existence that, that we don't want to uh, sit, we want to say has, has got particular value. Somebody said... Um, face-to-face -face in some context. Did you read that in the paper the other day? And somebody, uh, somebody responded and said, oh, is that new? <laughs> it's a replacement for Facebook. Face-to-face. -face. Yep. Just moving along the same line of that question, what um, influence can an individual member of a church have on the organisation of a denomination? An individual member of... Um, uh, a fellowship of God's people ought to have an influence, ought to be able to have an influence uh, on the leadership of their own church. It's usual, I don't think it's necessary, but it's usual for uh, the relationship between churches to have a lot to do with the leadership of the churches. Uh, the leadership of the, uh, of the churches um, work together and work out ways in which these churches can care for one another, can communicate and so on. Uh, it, uh, I, I think a simple example, it, it will vary enormously. There's a, any variety of the number of kind of associations you can have with other churches. Um, I find it helpful just to think of, the, uh, the, uh, uh, of a church in Africa. Uh, we have um, a wonderful uh, sister in the church that I'm at at the moment who has uh, knowledge of a church uh, in Nigeria uh, with particular needs and particular work, uh, she's constantly telling us about that church and we as a church are praying for it. Um, now, she has brought our church into relationship with that church. Now, that, you, uh, yeah, you wouldn't call that a denomination, would you? But it's the same spiritual reality right, that we're trying to express with, with, with denominations. Now, uh, other churches, the churches of FIEC, the members of those churches, I don't know whether they know much about this conference, uh, all the members, they, I think they probably do. You're, you're not there doing your job, are you, this week? Uh, they're probably, probably aware of what, what's going on here. And uh, would they influence this? Would they encourage this to happen? They probably uh, help you to come here and all that kind of thing. Uh, that This is an expression of the fellowship. And you will take back to those churches things that you've benefited from this week. Although not all the members of all the churches are here. 
so I, I'd just say a whole variety of ways in which congregations of Christ's people that associate with one another in one way or another, um, the, the members will, be, uh, will experience that uh, in a variety of ways. Yep, Conan. I think I just proceed carefully, that's all. I'm not, I'm not giving black and whites here. Um, I'm saying uh, if you're going to set up a structure that will enable the churches that are associated to do, to do things that the individual churches couldn't do, that's terrific. That's exactly what, that's one of the reasons that you ought to, we ought to associate with one another. Pool resources, finance something that none of us could do on our own. Uh, yeah, do that. Uh, pool resources of wisdom and do that. Uh, just watch closely how the central thing that you're setting up, and you inevitably will set up some central things for, for that very good reason. You'll, you'll do some stuff together. Watch very closely how much... Uh, I, sorry, I'm exhorting you to. Please don't. I, I'm sounding a little bit pontificating here. I don't, I don't mean to sound like that, and I apologise for it. But I'd encourage you to, to watch very closely the way in which the organisation you've set up has power over the congregations that come to life. Uh, that, that, that's, that, that would be my, my big concern. Um, there'll, be a, there'll be a desire for, to have some control over funds and property and sometimes that will be appropriate. But watch it closely and keep it to a minimum. Free up the congregations as much as possible from central control. Okay? That's not to say that doing things centrally, doing things together is another way, is, is, is essentially wrong. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying watch, watch what you set up and uh, the degree of freedom that the, uh, that the churches have. That's why the word independent is probably still helpful in your title. It's just the sense in which you mean it. Um, Yes. Um, uh, if I've got the question right, David, correct me if I've got it wrong. I've said it, he's just pointing out a contradiction. He's got a good mind, this man. Uh, uh, a contradiction in what I'm saying, and I think he's right, and I'll, try, I'll see if I can get myself out of it. Um, I said that one of the good reasons for having parallel denominations is differences, conscientious differences between believers. Uh, differences over baptism was my illustration. And then a bit later on I said... Uh, one of the problems with denominations is when their distinctives uh, actually create barriers to fellowship. Okay, I think that I, I think that I want to hold to both of those. I try not to be too pig-headed here. That is, if if this group, you know, suddenly we suddenly found that half of us believed, you know, I'll, I'll, because I lack imagination, I'll keep using baptism. Uh, really had saw things one way with baptism and another group saw another thing with baptism and wanted to practice it and, and actually it, it, it affected us so much it was, it was so important to us or it was so important to one of the groups 
That's what usually happens. One of the groups thinks it's a really important issue. The other group isn't convinced and is, is reasonably relaxed about it. Then you probably have to part your ways to a certain extent. Right? Or, you, or you might have to, depending on the nature of your association. Then I'd want to exhort both groups to, to, to watch very carefully as to whether that thing that, that is a denominational distinctive is going to be a barrier to fellowship between you, to, to Christian fellowship between you, so that you end up saying that anybody who belongs to that association uh, can't come and be part of our fellowship in any way. Um, so the, the dis to, to allow for freedom of conscience is one thing, and to allow freedom in Christian views about a range of neutral matters or uh, relatively unimportant matters is one thing. To build up any of those things as a barrier to fellowship, so we won't actually fellowship with people uh, who, who don't hold to our distinctives, uh, is the problem that I was trying to, trying to get to. That's the, do you want to come back again, Dave? Yeah. 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 The sort of things that usually create parallel denominations are things where you can't work together. Um, really strangely, it's not uh, the, 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 the really big things. Um, and so you've, you, you'll probably find that uh, there will be differences in this fellowship over ways of doing things before there are theological differences of, of, of great significance. Uh, I think that that's likely. And then the danger of ways of doing things getting out of hand and us thinking they're much more important than they really are uh, is a thing that we've got to watch. But if we, you know, if you're really committed to doing something one way for one reason or another uh, and it just doesn't work with the other, then you go, you go your way and do it and and uh, I want to um, you know, bless and encourage you in doing that, but you might have to go and do it on your own without me. Uh, that's okay, but let's remain in Christian fellowship together. Let's not, let's not make what isn't a gospel issue a gospel issue. Greg. No, I have no idea. Uh, it seems to me that it's got more to do with time than size, but it might. Uh, it might have something to do with size. So when you get to a certain size, you see, you guys, are, 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 it's still uh, of a size where you know one another. Uh, so that I think that you can work... When you, when you get your 500 churches, which won't be long, uh, it might be more difficult, but probably more difficult when another generation has grown up or the, the one after that. Uh, that, that, that didn't know about the beginning. Uh, so I, I think that time is probably where the difficulties will arise more than size, but I, it's very hard. I, I haven't got any stats for that. That's just a hunch.
I don't know, to be honest. I, I, I don't know exactly uh, what Jesus had in mind, but I suspect it's the kind of thing that we see being encouraged in the epistles. So I, 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 just as a general rule of thumb, what does Jesus' teaching mean in the life of churches and Christian life? I go to the epistles and living the way in which uh, the apostle teaches us to live in the epistles, uh, when that is seen, and it's nearly all focused on your relationships with Christians you know. Uh, and certainly in the New Testament setting, in our modern setting, that might be bigger, but, but the, the, the focus of it is the, the, the Christians you meet with regularly. When that is seen, uh, people wonder at it. And they still do, friends. You notice that? They really do wonder at it. We, we have the experience at college regularly. Uh, folk who come and join us at college and been, been with us for six months. Uh, it ha- happened, I think it was last year. Somebody had been with us for six months. They, they had been working down at, the, at, down at RPA, uh, the, the hospital down the road from us, and uh, this person went back to their old workplace, walked in the door and came back to college and said, I'd forgotten. I'd forgotten what it was like to be in a context where people don't love one another the way you do in a Christian community. Uh, people do see it. Uh, they don't admit that they see it, but they certainly see uh, the love that is inspired by the Spirit between us. The fruit of the Spirit is evident when you don't know it. Uh, so, general sort of answer, answer to your question. But it's, but it's not primarily about, this is not to deny it, but I don't think that's primarily about our, our love for the Christians we don't know and don't meet with. Yeah, I think it's primarily seen uh, again in the local congregation. Yep. So, I mean, I uh, don't know that I want to push back, brother. I think, I think that's helpful. I, I get into trouble whenever I try and insist on this, this line that the church doesn't have a mission, which is what, what I said earlier on. And it's right that I get, get into trouble with it because it, 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 can be, it can be pushed too far. But what I'm trying to underline is that the existence of the fellowship of God's people is a wonderful thing and an end in itself. My parallel earlier on was the forgiveness of sins. You don't say, well, why did you forgive my sins? What's it for? What's it going to do? No, the Lord has forgiven your sins. That's cleansed you. Now, once your sins are forgiven, do you do stuff as a forgiven person? Of course you do stuff as a forgiven person. Um, as the Church of Jesus Christ, do we do stuff? Of course we do stuff. Uh, does it have consequences that... These people have been gathered together and the spirit of Christ has been poured into our hearts and we love one another. Does that have consequences? Sure it does. But do treasure it for what it is. Don't just treasure it for what it will do. 
Right? Value the church for what it is. Don't just value it for what it will do. Uh, it, it, that, that's, as, that's as much as I'm really pushing for uh, with what is probably a slight overstatement uh, by the, the way I put it earlier on. But, uh, but I, I, I don't want this point to be missed because we are, we are pragmatists. We are do people. We've learnt too much, much too much from Harvard Business School. Uh, we organise our churches, mission statements and all this stuff from the world of business. It dominates us and it has twisted us. Um, <laughs> I'm always fighting the businessmen at Moore College. You know what they want to talk about? Our stakeholders. For crying out loud. <laughs> there are people who we are in fellowship with. There are people who pray for us. There are people who long to see the college flourish. There are pe- but they're not stakeholders. You know, they've got a stake in the college and they're going to get some... You know, the language of the business world distorts our thinking... Uh, there's stuff to learn from the business world about how, how organisations work. Uh, take it on board, but try to do it without taking their language on board because that, that really does twist. You know, our students at college are now, sorry, not by us, but by bodies outside of us called clients or customers. How does that change the relationship between a teacher and a student when the student is a customer and you are a provider? How much more in church when we start thinking in those sort of terms? So don't think in terms of church of... Church exists for what it will do. That's how you think about a business. Uh, church exists, praise be to God. And yeah, it'll do stuff. We pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our fellowship together. We thank you for the opportunity to reflect on your ways with us. We pray that uh, those things that we've seen in your word, you would help us to grasp. We pray that you'd give us the wisdom to discern those things that are important from those things that are unimportant. We pray, Heavenly Father, that uh, this fellowship, this fellowship of churches, this wonderful work that you are doing among us, we pray that you would bless this fellowship, that it would be what you want it to be, that it would serve the good of the churches that we represent and that those churches themselves would be richly blessed by you. Be with us through the remainder of uh, these days, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.